stage of the race, incredibly difficult to... There were these times I made mistakes and people, you know, they're like, oh, we saw you make that mistake and we thought it was all over. And I don't even remember making the mistakes because, you know, when you're in that space and you're really focused on the present moment and the present task at hand, that's a key for me to having my best personal performances. I do a lot of things um, that center around the mental training and the goal is really to find that space as much as you can. So figuring out what's going to get me there and keep me there for as long as possible in a race so that I can rise to the challenge of whatever comes at me and really stay present on just doing my best in the moment. Welcome to the Common Threads. During each episode, we'll travel through time to explore the childhoods, influences, and habits of the people behind some of the world's leading companies, movements, and ideas. Subscribe today on Apple Podcasts or your favorite listening app, or check us out at commonthreadsmedia.com. I'm your host, David Swain. So Kate Courtney, 12-time national champion, 2017 U23 World Cup overall champion, and just returning to California after winning the overall World Cup. That's like a big... And how old are you? I'm 22. <laughs> 22. That's a big roster. I'm like, I was trying to figure out where does it go? Where does it go from here? But why don't we just not even go there and let's start <laughs> with what you have for lot. breakfast this morning? Ooh, <laughs> I had some pancakes for breakfast. Pancakes. Yeah, it's my go-to. That is a good one. I'm usually an oatmeal person, but pancakes is good. You got to spice we do up that your on life. Sundays. <laughs> Get some maple syrup involved, you know? <laughs> All right. Maple syrup is good. So when did you get back after, tell me about the couple of weeks following um, winning and going into your next race, and then now you're in some downtime? A little bit, yeah. So World Championships was certainly a big end to the season for me, the cross-country season, and the aftermath was a little a little crazy. So we ended up going um, straight from there to Marathon World Championships, which is quite outside my comfort zone and was a huge challenge, um, especially given just the emotional high of winning worlds and that huge dream coming into fruition. Um, took a little, a little bit to recover from, but I'm, I made it through marathon worlds. It was not maybe so pretty at times, uh, but it was a huge challenge. And I think it's something that will serve me well in the long run in terms of building that endurance and also just, giving myself a benchmark of how hard a race can be right. so that in the future <laughs> I feel better about racing for an hour and a half instead of five and a half yeah. hours. But yeah, then I was able to go on vacation for a little bit and actually brought my bike, which for me has been a key insight in the last couple of seasons is after racing ends, I love to be able to just ride as long as I want, bring gummy bears as fuel, not be eating cliff bars and leaving at a certain time and riding for a certain amount at a certain power. Um, I just get to go and explore beautiful places. We rode Stelvio. That was my first uh, ride in the rainbow Jersey. So it was a pretty special moment and a really good way to kind of reset mentally for me while still doing what I love and being on the bike. Right. I only got to watch your win on YouTube. Unfortunately, it would have been nice to see it in person, but coming across the finish line, the roar, like a lot of people here in the U.S. who haven't seen 
that. Um, walk us through <laughs> yeah, it when was, you come across. It was a really special atmosphere. So the World Championships was in Lenzerheide, Switzerland. And uh, while mountain biking was actually started in the U.S. Yeah. Um, on Mount Tam, where we are sitting you know, in the shadow of right now. It's been pretty dominated by Europeans in the last, you know, couple of decades and particularly the Swiss, they win basically everything. (laughs) So they're really into it. And the crowd, the atmosphere was unlike any event I've been to. There were, I think, 25,000 fans. And that was for the women's and the men's race, which was really cool to see. And for reference, that's more than are allowed at the Olympics. So the Olympics, they sell 20,000 tickets. So to, to be able to mm-hmm. um, compete in that atmosphere was a huge honor and was really motivating. But to come away with the win, and especially in kind of a surprising fashion at the end, I think it was really exciting. And people were uh, were pretty into the race. So it was, it was very cool to have that support and to see those crowds for what has been a, a bit of a niche sport in the past. Yeah, and we've got the Olympics 2020, Tokyo. Yeah. Hasn't, yeah. It's not being talked about yet much, but <laughs> I'm sure well, I it's think, in your... Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's been in a big topic of conversation for a couple years yeah. for us. Um, for me, I narrowly missed going in 2016. I took two quarters off at Stanford and, and really was, you know, kind of... I was a little bit young and was racing the U23 category, so it was a huge long shot, but... You know, at the end of the day, I really wanted to go. Uh, And not making that team was a disappointment. It would have been a discretionary pick. I I definitely wouldn't have qualified automatically. But um, I think it really galvanized my (laughs) desire to go and and really want to perform well in 2020. So after that year, it's been absolutely a focus. And I think of it really as a four-year plan. So Mm. this was another step in that direction. And this year the focus was really building endurance based power. Um, but to come away with a win this year, I think really, you know, it's, it's a foot in the door for me. It's showing me that dreaming of being the best in the world is possible on my best day ever. And that's what you have to have to do well at the Olympics. And, you know, being able to wear the rainbow Jersey is a good reminder that every race is different. And I'm not at the top of the field yet, but that on the perfect day when the preparation is right and the conditions all work out, that it's possible. So Mm. it's really motivating for me heading towards 2020. Awesome. I want to talk more about that. But why don't we go back to, we're like staring at Mount Tam out the the window. And that's your, you know, where you grew up. And I read about, you know, you used to ride the tandem behind your dad going up the mountain. Talk about kind of your journey as a kid and finding the sport and maybe what other sports you were doing, how you thought about athletics as a kid and when this hit you. Yeah, I think, um, you know, I grew up playing a lot of different sports. I actually ski raced for a long time. I ran cross country. I horseback rode. I did gymnastics. And I think looking back, a lot of those things were individual sports that really show a hard work in progress out kind of mentality. And so I think I really love to see, okay, I'm working on improving this skill. Okay, I'm getting better at it. And that was something that I was really drawn to in all of those sports. And I think really found the perfect place for it in mountain biking. But growing up, the awesome thing was that those sports were just fun. And my parents 
really didn't put pressure on it. It was something we did as a family. And especially with mountain biking, it was really honestly a vehicle to get blueberry pancakes on Sunday mornings. <laughs> it was not a competitive sport or something that we even did with like a means to an end. Like it was, it was just for fun. And for me, being able to still have that, you know, this morning I rode with my dad and my mechanic and we did a ride that I've done since I was 14. Right. Took us an hour less than when I was 14, which we joke about to no end. But being able to come back to that and know that for me, sports are really this fun, amazing way to experience the world and to spend time with people I love, I think is going to be really important in my career. And hopefully protect me from uh, some of the burnout that comes from the harder parts of the job. Doing stuff that you are naturally drawn to and doing it for fun, like the fun that brought you in. Um, I want to talk about how, how you've been able to maintain the fun as a professional where the demands, I mean, most of us go through college and have a hard enough time just like keeping up with our friends and studying. Um, going through it as a professional athlete is a whole different level but how you've been able to maintain that, but also the parenting and support that you had as a kid. And, you know, to compete at your level too, you must obviously, whether it's competitive drive or believing in yourself, whatever it is, I'm curious, as a kid growing up playing these sports, where you get that drive. Hmm. I mean, it's hard to put your finger yeah. on. I've always been really competitive. And I think for me, the key is that, you know, effort and progress out thing. I love to see, you know, improving at something. And and mountain biking is a sport that gives you a lot of opportunities to do so, right. whether it's, you know, for me training with a power meter and seeing those numbers go up, or even just today, as I said, riding with my dad and seeing that we can do that same ride in two and a half hours that used to take us three and a half hours. Um, there's really tangible progress in so many different ways. And that's something that I think I've always been drawn to in athletics. But for me, support has been a huge part of it. And I think being in college in particular, I was really fortunate to be close to my parents and to have them really step up and support me. But it's also a tricky balance. Uh, I think parenting an athlete is a really challenging thing. And I'm incredibly grateful. In particular, my dad has always had a really good balance between you know, believing in me and pushing me to see what might be possible, but also putting no pressure on me. Hmm. And at the world championships, if you watch the video, a little, a little tear jerker, I crossed the finish line and went straight to my parents and we all cried our eyeballs out. Yeah. Um, and for me, part of the thing about that is my parents were there cause they love me and they love the sport and they absolutely like, I believe that they would have been unconditionally proud of me. Like they're proud of me just for taking the line. Like I think that's a, something that takes bravery and a lot right. of preparation and they respect that. And if I had had my worst race ever at Worlds, we would have still gone and had champagne and celebrated the season. And I would have been with people that love me and that I enjoy being with. But to also kind of surprise them and surprise myself and achieve something that we've talked about jokingly since you know, I started and I never really even thought of in a tangible way um, was a really special moment. And I think because they never put pressure on me, because they believe in me unconditionally and love me unconditionally, um, it's even more special. Mm -hmm. It's like a huge bonus 
to be able to achieve that and achieve that together. And if you, I'll, I'll send you the picture. I was able to give my dad the, the world champion to so watch on the podium. And that's like, oh, that's, yeah, <laughs> it's one of the coolest things that I've ever been able to do. And, you know, he's been checking the time a lot. <laughs> since then. Like, Does anyone need to know what time it is again? <laughs> So, so I won the parent lottery is That's my amazing. answer to that one. That's great. And what about, um, these sports like ski racing, cycling that are more individual sports where the U S hasn't always been the dominant ones, but it's such a great outlet, even if you're not competing for kids to be out there, what have you learned through being this present in the sport and being abroad? Are there things that when you look at the future of cycling or outdoor sports in the u.s things that we could bring back or learn from like in marin now there's mountain bike teams in high school like that yeah. that's, that's like a completely foreign notion to most people mm-hmm. and they're like fully packed teams right oh it's unbelievable yeah. so i actually started i went to branson high school here in marin and the way i actually started mountain bike racing was my freshman year of high school I did it in the spring as cross training for running. I was really into cross country. I was, you know, having some early success in the local leagues and was really motivated. And as soon as I tried mountain biking, I decided never to run again because uh, it was everything I loved about running, but also a lot of new elements. But yeah, I think what you're saying about the broad appeal of cycling is something that's really makes the sport meaningful to me is that it is a lifetime sport. It's something you see, and even in ski racing, like you see people who are at the top in ski racing, they still ski for the rest of their lives. You know, people who are at the top in mountain biking, they retire and they still ride their bikes all the time because it's something that you can do in so many different ways and that can be a part of your life in so many different ways. And I think especially with e-bikes now, you know, today actually my dad rode the e-bike. Uh, he, <laughs> the vacation was hard on him. Yeah. Um, but it enables so many people to enjoy the outdoors in the way that's best for them and to get the best out of it. And for me, being able to share my cycling career and also connect with all those kids that are just taking it up or even adults that are starting riding um, is what makes it a little bit more meaningful to race and also is a huge motivator for me in terms of like interacting with people on social media and sharing Mm. the love for the bike, which whether you're racing or not is often pretty similar. (laughs) Have you gotten, and through social media or otherwise, are there a lot of girls out there who have your name and are like, that's where I want to go when I grow up? Have you gotten those inspirational letters? (laughs) I've gotten some pretty cute ones. My favorite one was uh, someone sent me a screenshot of a sixth grader who's in the middle school league. They now have middle school leagues too, which is unbelievable. And she was asked what she wanted to be when she grows up. And she said, I want to be... Kate plus fate, but I also want to be a mom. So I'll have to figure out how to bring my babies with me (laughs) so I can win the world championship, (laughs) which I thought was just, you know, in the words of a sixth grader, you can't say it any better. But, but for me, that's really cool. I think there's so many women and, and athletes across a lot of different sports that have shown me it's possible for Americans to achieve at the top level. And in cycling, it's possible for, women to win medals at the world championships, you know, Georgia Gould and Leah Davison have both won medals at the world championships in my career. And hopefully this win continues to show the next generation, Hey, look, it's possible. And 
you know, go one at me, go win an Olympic medal. Mm -hmm. What do you think for putting it on the map more throughout the U.S.? You know, you look at what we gravitate towards in TV with like high action sports, mountain biking, cross, like what you're doing, hour and a half, the highlight reel for 20 minutes is pretty exciting. It's exciting. Yeah. yeah I no, think it's, it's starting to get more attention. There's crashes. There's crashes. <laughs> there's, I mean, all the, all the races are so competitive at this yeah. stage. And I think in particular, the women's racing in the past five years has been in some ways more exciting than yeah. the men's and, and really competitive. And I think that's being recognized. And, you know, I've, I've been talking about it with some, you know, fellow racers. I think it's starting to be appreciated, you know, with the gender line kind of fading a little bit. Yeah. Like it's just both of the races are seen as taking grit and hard work and all of these amazing, exciting things that we love about sports and we love about bike racing are being recognized and appreciated in the men's and the women's races and people are watching them. And I hope that that continues to grow because it is a really exciting sport and it's really special mm -hmm. to be able to share it. And the coverage is great. You know, Red Bull's done a really amazing job yeah. streaming those and, and giving people an appreciation for the athletes and what they're doing and how they're doing it. And I think that's something that will hopefully only pick up steam in the future. Yeah. I want to talk some about just like nutrition, training, mind, the combination of the three. But I'm curious, you know, you've been doing this now for long enough and at a high enough level that when you look at, you know, you've got your, the average person doesn't have like the big training season and the race season. And some of us do. I mean, I train for my couple cycle cross races. That's like the extent of it. But the learnings that you've had on, I mean, I always hear people talk about how people, what is it? You train, you don't train easy enough on your easy days. And then you go, you're always somewhere in the middle, right? Like where you're not yeah. training. Walk us through, like, I mean, you've got the power meter. I'm still, yeah. like, I, late 90s. I feel like I'm just reading my heart rate. That's, like, about yeah. as advanced as I get. Um, well, I think, you know, in some ways, everyone has a different approach. And for me, I'm a numbers gal. Like, yeah. I love it. I love training with power. And it's actually really motivating to me. I think for some people, it's, like, they're chained to their power meter, and it's, it's a limiter. They would go harder or go faster without it. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas I think for me and, and my coach is very – numbers oriented as well. I think we have a really good approach that works for me and a way to use those numbers to get the most out of my training and to make it as specific and optimal as possible. But I will say, yeah, what you're saying about the training too hard and, you know, not training hard enough on your hard days and right. too easy on your easy days is, is definitely something that I've experienced in the last few years. Um, I transitioned to being coached by Jim Miller, who's amazing and has really been the perfect partner for me in, in dialing in my training and taking things to the next level. But one of the things that I learned very quickly was when I have rest, take it. When, mm -hmm. when you have a rest day, put your legs up because something is coming. And that's something that I actually really thrive uh, with is doing complete rest when I need to and being absolutely full gas when I need to. So in preparation for the Cape Epic, for example, I did the Cape Epic, yeah. uh, which was, you know, I think it was 35 hours in eight days and absolutely insane hard intervals, really hard days on the bike. I did a race in the middle of it. It was 
mentally and physically so much farther than I'd ever pushed myself before. And just objectively, that's a lot of time to ride a bike. So doing something like that, I think is really helpful for me. It's so hard and it shows me what the human body is capable of, but it only works if you then actually completely rest. And for me, oftentimes that means mid season taking time completely off the bike or, you know, I usually during the winter will take a week or a week and a half and go up to Tahoe without a bike. And I cross country ski and I do a lot of strength training, but it's really meant to be breaking from my normal routine and getting that like deep mental rest that I think a lot of people are afraid to take throughout the season. Because that's another thing where I think it's always, I don't see it talked about enough is like the strength training side of sports for endurance sports. Like it seems like it's like something that everyone's doing, but they're not actually talking about (laughs) or they should be doing. (laughs) And how much strength training do you incorporate throughout the year? It depends a little bit on the season and the goals and how many days a week I can get into the gym because it obviously requires a lot of coordination so that you're not too tired for your strength days or too tired on the bike um, because those two elements have to really work together to be successful. For me, usually it's three days a week in the fall and kind of when that ends depends on what the early season spring goals are. And the past couple of years, I've actually done strength through the season And that's been really helpful for me, especially I think as a smaller rider, being able to like build a lot of muscular strength and be able to handle the bike and, and really get through those technical sections smooth and fast has really been related to my, my strength training and especially also doing coordination and balance and all these things that. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask is how much is the like more agility core type work versus. It's like half and half for me, I would say. And I think also there's the element of injury prevention that plays a huge role. And got a visit from my friendly dog here. (laughs) Big dog fan, big dog fan. Um, Yeah, for me, I think also, you know, there's a lot of other elements to my training. For example, doing, I do yoga a lot during the off season and maybe a little less so when I'm traveling, but, but I still do stretching and, and recovery protocols and the strength training and all those things complement what I do on the bike. They aren't the bulk of what I do. Riding is a bulk of what I do, but they're really important to developing a lot of, as you're saying, those, those other skills, strength, endurance, coordination, and, you know, as I was saying, injury prevention. And on recovery, what do people need to know? What's the, I don't know if, if I'm the expert. break it down on, you know, just what you learned. My number one yeah. recovery thing is napping. Yeah. Napping is amazing. When I was a student, it was just not going to be a possibility. <laughs> um, so I was, I was pretty rushed during the days and would come home from a ride and run straight to class with a cliff bar in hand. But now I really have time to focus on what works best for me and what helps me recover most. And for me, a lot of times, either separating sessions with a nap in between or just making sure that when I get off the bike, I do something immediately that kind of switches on that parasympathetic nervous system and switches my body into recovery mode. Sometimes it's a nap. Maybe it's like doing some quiet stretching after you ride. Maybe it's meditating. I meditate every day. Um, Those types of things can really help me switch. Whereas sometimes you get home and you're, you know, you have endorphins, you just had this big ride and it's easy to spend a lot of time on your phone or do something immediately or, or try to run around your house doing a million things at once. Um, and so for me, trying to be really deliberate about 
those recovery processes. I think it's a lot easier when it's your full-time job and you have to think about that, but it's really made a difference for me mm. in terms of being able to get the most out of every training session. There's so much in there. Meditation every day. When did you start that? I've kind of off and on been interested in it since high school. Yeah. I got a little bit more serious about it during college. And actually, I was the teaching assistant for the MBSR, the mindfulness-based stress reduction mm. class, so like John Kabat-Zinn, yeah. uh, one at the Stanford Med School for three quarters. I did every year, every spring. It was also good timing with the bike season. It was you know, a good class to have getting credit for, uh, but also hugely helped my cycling. I think that was a much bigger dose. It was Tuesday nights and it was two and a half hours. So you'd meditate for like an hour and talk about stuff, but, but you'd end up getting a huge amount of meditation in. And that really helped me and I think motivated me to start doing it every day. But you have to find what works best mm. for you. And for me, it's 10 to 15 minutes in the morning right away. And at that With length... With an app or anything or just straight? I can do it unguided. And yeah. I used to just use a timer. But I've started using the Headspace app recently. Yeah. And a, a lot of times... i of Headspace. Big fan. Yeah. I, a lot of times I just do the unguided one. But it's nice to have on there. And honestly... As much as it shouldn't matter, when you have like a streak going, it totally does motivate you to do yes, it. Yes, it does. And there are definitely times where I was like, oh, I haven't done it. Okay, I have to do it. You know, yeah. I have a hundred day streak. I got to keep it going. And I think that's a good thing. What yeah. about, so you've got these one day, hour and a half races where tremendous pressure to not make a mistake. I mean, it seems perfect for meditation, like being able to stay present through that whole thing. Yeah, I think that's a huge part. You know, if you go back and watch my World Champs series, I actually haven't watched the tape yet, so I need to go back and watch yeah. it. But I've been told, like, there were these times I made mistakes and people, you know, they're like, oh, we saw you make that mistake and we thought it was all over. And I don't even remember making the mistakes because, you know, when you're in that space and you're really focused on the present moment and the present task at hand, you don't think, oh my God, I clipped out in this route. The world has ended. You think okay, uh, okay, I'm just going to get around the next corner. And you're focused on the task at hand. And I think that's the key for me to having my best personal performances. And it's something mm. that, you know, I continue to work on. I have a sports psychologist. I do that meditation piece. I, I do a lot of things um, that center around the mental training. And the goal is really to find that space as much as you can. So figuring out what's going to get me there and keep me there for as long as possible in a race so that I can rise to the challenge of whatever comes at mm -hmm. me and really stay present on just doing my best in the moment. At your peer group, do you see the same level of attention on the mental side? You know, everyone's different again. Yeah. I think that's one of the really interesting things about being an athlete at this level is everyone has a different approach. And I'm sure right. there's things other athletes are doing that uh, work, work really for well them. for them and wouldn't yeah. work for me and vice versa. But I think, you know, having these kind of methodical approaches and having everything kind of quantified and planned out. And I have my village of support and my team and I work with them really closely. I think that is an approach that's really worked for me across all the different elements, whether it be nutrition or meditation or the strength training. I, I really like have an approach that works for me. And I think 
other people have different approaches and, and they and clearly you, work for them. When you have like your off days or your power meter is showing that it's going in the wrong direction, you just wish that it was, you know, you were expecting to have a big day and you don't. <laughs> what is your approach for getting yourself mm-hmm. through the bumps in the road? Yeah, I think a lot of times like one workout or one day, it's a bad day. There's usually some kind of explanation. Sometimes yeah. it's just an off day. Sometimes you didn't sleep well. Sometimes you trained too hard the day before. And and usually I think given how big the picture is, given how long the season is and how many training cycles I have, I'm usually able to stay kind of calm in those moments. Yeah. It is a little tricky like if you have your last workout before you go to a World Cup and it goes horribly wrong. Yeah. Just happened a lot of times. That can be a little stressful. But once you've you've had those moments and you've seen that you can still race well, it becomes a little easier to trust the process and just focus on doing your job and just getting it yeah. done, whatever that looks like on that given day. And so the, your support network and the community that you have around you, like with your coaches and what's that communication like? You know, is that like a, I'm, I'm more like you, you're on the road with them or you're doing your weekly no. calls or yeah. you're... Yeah, so so most of the people are not on the road with me. Yeah. Um, my mechanic will be on the road with me, and I have my support team with my sponsors. But usually uh, my coach, my sports psychologist, my nutritionist, my strength coach, those people are remote, and I'll have calls with them. But I think also for those people, I've been really fortunate to work with people that are really bought in, and they're really they're, – they're there for whatever I need and they believe in me and they're there to support me. And I am really close with them. You know, I text my nutritionist about his kids. He sends me like videos of them. Uh, they are really into watching the women's mountain biking. They actually don't watch the men's. His two little boys only want to watch the women's, which I love, but they like will hold mock races and like pretend to be different women in the field. They're like, I'm Yolanda. Like I'm Kate. So he sends me videos of those, but that's a silly example. But I yeah. think for me, like being close with those people family. and having them part of it means that we work together on a different level and we really are a team. And when something big happens, like worlds, like we did it. And those people are a part of it and they feel a part of it. And part of it is because hmm. we work so closely together. You know, I don't just call them at the beginning of the season, set up a plan and check in, you know, they're, I'm texting them the week of worlds. Okay, uh, nutritionally, like I, this changed or the weather's looking like this or I can't get, I, I my this was actually a funny worlds one. My skin suit didn't have pockets. So I called my nutritionist. Okay, we have to figure out a fueling plan. I don't want to try something new during world champs. And But those are examples of cases in which having someone that knows you really well and you work really close with them enables you to dial in a plan that's maybe better than it would be if you were just kind of winging it. <laughs> well, let's talk nutrition for a minute. I'm always curious, it's just for me when I was doing some of the just events I've done, you're always researching like, what do you eat before the race? What do you eat during the race? What do you eat after the race? There never seems to be a right answer and it seems to be personal to each person. But I, I'm sure you've tested and learned a lot about what works for you. So what works? Like what's yeah. your formula? <laughs> well, I don't know if there's like an exact yeah. formula. I think... As you said, that's the tricky thing, is it's so individual. Um, what makes me feel good on the bike might not work for someone else, and and there's just weird things. Like certain 
caffeine's like really hurt my stomach and mm. I would never have figured it out unless I had taken it and then did a race and really didn't feel well and figured it out. Whereas they work perfectly fine for another athlete. So I think it is like trial and error, those kinds of things. But for me, you know, waffles, pancakes are a good pre-race. I do, Red Bull's my source of caffeine and that's actually worked really well for me. It's something I hadn't tried until like two years ago and it, it was kind of a game changer because um, I don't drink coffee really daily and mm. and being able to have a really reliable amount of caffeine is something I've struggled with. So that's worked for me. Is that um, before training, like the caffeine? or Yeah. yeah. But usually before really hard workouts or yeah. before races. Yeah. And during the off season, right now I'm a little more free right. to do yes. whatever I please. But during the race season, I think actually for me, I use caffeine as a tool. Yeah. And actually like on a rest day, for example, I wouldn't, I would purposely not have caffeine and feel terrible. Cause I think it's important to feel terrible on some days and to really, really rest. Whereas, you know, I could have two cups of coffee and run around and do a bunch of stuff. I see it as a tool to help me train more. And sometimes something that I have to control in order to like really let my body right. do what it needs to do and recover. What about, so on like recovery, you come back from a ride, you reach in your fridge <laughs> or your cabinet yeah. or your backpack on the road. What do you, what do you grab? Um, recovery shake. Yeah. That's, if I had to say one nutrition thing that I think is universally important and is not individual, it's have some kind of recovery shake after yeah. your hard workouts. And I have found one that works for me, but I'm sure there's different levels of protein and carbohydrates that might work for different people or that certain people believe in. There's, there's never a consensus yeah. on that. But for me, getting that protein and carbohydrates right after my ride, it's usually for me the cliff recovery mix. It tastes like chocolate. It's delicious. Uh, mm -hmm. And almond milk. It serves a purpose in terms of getting me nutrition quickly. So then I'm not starving, reaching into my cabinet for potato chips yeah. and something like anything. You know how it feels yes. after a hard yeah. ride. Yeah. You'll Especially eat when you anything. didn't eat enough on the ride. Exactly. So yeah. having the recovery shake staves that off enough that you make better decisions. You're, you have enough time to say, oh, actually, okay, I'm going to make yeah. eggs and polenta instead of just grabbing whatever right. is in front of you. And my nutritionist has talked to me a lot about, you know, you're training your body and your mind to know what's coming. So when I do something really hard and they know, mm. well, that made it sound like there is someone else. No, but my body knows, okay, we're expending this energy, but we're going to get fuel along the way and we're doing this really hard thing, but we're definitely going to get the fuel we need right after. It keeps your body from like kind of shutting down and protecting yourself. And I think is really important to do consistently throughout the season. And what about during what you eat during a race? How different is that than during a training ride? Not super different. I yeah. think... It'll be a little like simpler triggers. Like I wouldn't eat a cliff bar during a race. Right. I'd eat the shop box yeah. or um or a gel or something. So yeah. it can be a bit different. But in a cross country race, it is only, you know, an hour and a half. So fueling is is important and I stick to a plan, but it's also not as important as maybe in marathon racing or on those longer training rides, it's actually more important yeah. for me to be 
keeping up with nutrition, you know, on a four and a half hour ride, if you aren't on top of things, you will get home and be starving. And if you're doing that one day, cool, you can make it happen. But if you're doing that day after day after day, it impacts your next workout and impacts the workout after that. And it also long-term can just affect your health and hormones if you're consistently underfed and balking on rides. So it's something that I definitely pay a lot of attention to. Um, I just did the whole 30. Have you heard of oh that? Oh boy, that sounds, it was, I have heard of it and oh my it gosh. sounds I just brutal. did it as like more of a mental test to see if I could, what would happen going through cutting a whole bunch of stuff out. I slept a lot better, which was awesome. That's I was a lot grumpier in the afternoon, <laughs> which was not awesome. <laughs> Exercise Strengths was not very good. <laughs> there, there was definitely some, some carbs missing on the rides, but, yeah. um, are you like, there's no like gluten, dairy, all of that? I've. I do have, so I have a really weird response to gluten and I've done blood tests. I've been to a bunch of different doctors yeah. about it and we can't really explain it, but I get super congested and I get asthma huh. if I eat gluten. And as soon as it's we not good took. good for a bike racer. It's not good, but I used to have an inhaler and I had to take a daily inhaled um, steroid just to not have really bad breathing problems on the bike yeah. and cutting out gluten completely solved that problem. So mm. during the off season, I definitely, I've in Italy, I was on the baguette diet for a few days and yeah. I, I really feel the effects of it. It's not bad enough that in your daily life you would notice if you weren't exercising, but as soon as I like go above zone two, I, I can't breathe. So for any, yeah, it's maybe one week a year that I'm a little more flexible on it, especially if I'm off the bike, it's okay. But, but yeah, I'm, I'm on a gluten-free diet because of that. Hmm. Makes traveling really it's fun. Yeah. No, I think it's on a lot easier. So I started being gluten-free. I went gluten-free my sophomore of high school. So wow. a really long time ago. And that was before it was cool. Uh, (laughs) now it's kind of cool and trendy, although sometimes you get a like bad rap for that, but, but yeah, that was before it was common and there were no options there. The bread was terrible. You couldn't get gluten-free pasta. You just had to cut it out. And luckily I think, well, maybe not so luckily, but my dad actually had the same issue. Um, he actually struggled with seasonal allergies and cutting gluten out work for him. And that's kind of how we figured it out for me. But because of that, our family just ate differently. We ate quinoa and rice and and just sweet potatoes. Sweet potatoes are my favorite food. We ate differently. And now I think it is a lot easier. Like I can get gluten-free bread anywhere in Europe and that's become a lot less challenging. You kind of covered this on nutrition, on training, like the thing that what, if there's something that you've learned along the way that the average like everyday athlete or the kid coming up like could have in their head, maybe it's on amount um, or on type or how do you get training, faster? For <laughs> training, how do you get faster? I would say pick a plan and stick to it yeah. um, is my biggest thing. I think everyone's looking for the secret to success and the like one thing that would do it. Whereas I think really it's not Time. a fun answer. It's <laughs> pounding the rock every day and deciding what that plan is for you and really committing to it. So mm. for me, every year I pick a new goal. I pick a thing that I want to develop or focus on. And, and usually it comes from weaknesses in the past season. And we pound the rock on that mm. one thing. And typically I emerge from the season and that's a strength. And I think 
you know, with training, it's, it's important to like have concrete goals, have a, have an approach, you know, there's a million different ways you can approach it, a million different ways you can structure training, but just pick one, pick one that you think will work for you. And if it doesn't, you can always change long-term, but I would say, you know, stick with it, give it a really fair shot and see how, you know, your fitness changes month to month, year to year, and then you can kind of tweak it from there. Insightful. That was good. <laughs> yes. Um, what about on kind of resources in addition to the community you have around you, but like reading, listening to podcasts, whatever, are there things that you kind of use to get yourself grounded or inspired? Yeah, I think I definitely aspire to be a lifelong learner. I think that's for sure my approach to cycling, but I think in general, like I read like crazy and it's actually a perfect thing to do for recovery and to do on planes and to do when you're waiting agonizingly to start a world cup race <laughs> for many days. So a lot of times it's books. I listen to audiobooks, I listen to podcasts and a lot of times I am drawn to kind of sports psychology stuff and, mm-hmm. and things that, you know, sometimes you wouldn't even think it relates to cycling. It's just a completely random book you're reading and there's little insights that come out that, infuse what I do. And I think that's how reading works in general for all people. You, you take the little nuggets away that mean something to you and that connect with your place in the world. And, and that's how reading is for me. So a lot of books I read are related to sports and I particularly like reading kind of memoirs of awesome female athletes. I think that's something I've done on a lot of bike trips. It's a good, it's a good pre-race yeah. <laughs> motivator. Any, fa- any favorites or, or what female athletes recently? that you've really kind of looked up to through? Yeah, I think, I mean, there's so many, yeah. which is an awesome place to be right now yeah. that we have so many strong, amazing female U.S. athletes. I think Lindsay Vaughn has always been a huge inspiration to me. I just read Abby Wambach's book. I just read Ronda Rousey's book. Um, So for me, being able to kind of read about all these different approaches and it's not something where you read that book and you say, oh, I'm going to do it that way. But as I said, like you take little nuggets away. So like maybe it's Ronda Rousey's like badassness and just like willingness to fight and persevere. Maybe that's like the thing I take away. But it's those little nuggets that I think kind of continue to give me sources of inspiration and, you know, help me find ways to improve. Yeah. Last one. Um, Okay, last one. Where cycling goes, exciting pockets that you're seeing, maybe even trends that are developing Mm -hmm. that are giving you hope or excitement about the future. I think there's huge room for success in American cycling in the future. I think there's so many athletes my age and younger that are really kind of blasting onto the scene across disciplines and and getting a lot of support. I think USA Cycling has really stepped it up and is putting a lot of support behind those athletes. And I think that there's going to be some exciting results in the coming years. But more so, I think beyond just the racing side, the strictly like high, high, Uh, level competitors, there's been a huge influx of people just riding their bikes. And as you said, the high school leagues, you know, getting boys and girls, the and girls part (laughs) is really important to me, but getting boys and girls out on their bikes, out on the mountains, out in nature and giving them the choice to 
do it competitively. I think with high school racing, you know, there are really good race opportunities and those races are competitive. And if you want to make that your thing, you can, and you have the opportunity. But I think also with cycling, which is not the case with all sports, there's a room for people who just love to do it. And it doesn't hurt anyone to have more people in the race. I mean, I'm sure, you know, the NorCal yeah. week had to split into North NorCal week and South NorCal week. Yeah. Cause I had so many student athletes, which I think is awesome. But, but yeah, if there's someone who wants to do it and it's their thing and they're the most competitive person and they want to win the race. Awesome. But there's also room for someone who just wants to try it out and, you know, might finish a little farther back, but they're still out there and they're doing it and they're, valued and appreciated as part of those teams. So for me, I think the cool next wave or the continued wave that's happening is more people being drawn into the sport just because it's fun and they love doing it and it keeps them healthy and active and outside, not necessarily just the competitive side of it. So hopefully both continue to grow. That's awesome. The high school teams, I mean, there's, even the just doing it for fun. I'm picturing moms and dads out there across the country who are bikers who could be starting these, right? Like outside of California and the pockets where the, where it already yeah. exists. What does that look like? Like what's the biking season in a high school? Yeah. Is it? It's typically in the, it's in the spring here. Yeah. And it's, it has spread. I think it's in 20 states now. So they okay. have a lot of leagues. Um, and a lot of kids doing it. It's really cool. And it is really cool also for the families, um, at these raises, you know, the family set it up. It's like a big barbecue. Everyone comes brothers and sisters running around. So it's a really cool atmosphere that invites in so many different people. And, uh, I think is a really positive thing for kids who maybe, as I was saying, maybe they're not athletes. Maybe that's not what they want to do. And that, that isn't like their whole identity, but it's part of what they want to do. And, you know, someone who might get cut from the basketball team can ride their bike and be a valued, awesome member of that team and doesn't have to win. You know, not everyone has to like be trying to win that race and it has to be that or nothing. Like just being there, racing, being a part of the team, uh, you bring a lot to the table and, you can share that with your family and with your community. And that's a really special, awesome thing that mountain biking has. And I think hopefully we'll make it a really huge sport uh, in the future. It's honest way. You are a wonderful spokesperson <laughs> for the sport. I hope so. <laughs> I do my best. Yeah. I, I really love it. It's yeah. genuine. <laughs> Very good. Um, thank you for joining thank the show. You. <laughs> thank you so much. Right. We'll take care. Thanks for listening to our show this week. If you want to find out more or give us your feedback, go to commonthreadsmedia.com or leave us a comment on Instagram or Facebook. You can subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Thanks to Alicia Barrett, who edited the show. You've been listening to The Common Threads from Common Threads Media.